Well, I'd like to welcome everybody here at the Bellingham campus and at the Ferndale campus and uh, all of those that are watching online as well. We're glad that you're here. And I just want you to just kind of ignore what's going on behind me because it's, uh, it's a part of what it is we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. In a few moments, I'm going to be sitting in front of an empty stage, which is fairly intimidating. I'm surrounded on both sides by empty frames. There's no pictures, even though it seems like there probably should be. More than anything, hanging just out of sight of our Ferndale friends, but hopefully they'll understand the context, there's an empty cross. It's not full. And that's what makes this time of year so unbelievably precious to all of us. Because if you read your Bible, if you ever have an opportunity to just open it up, you'll find out firsthand that Easter is full of empty. There's the empty cries of Palm Sunday, which we're going to talk about today. There's the empty dreams of of those people who thought Jesus was going to somehow... take over the whole Roman Empire, and then they found out that actually Jesus was planning on doing a different kind of takeover. There's the empty cross at the end of Good Friday that brings us so much unbelievable hope, and then there's this really cool part. I don't want to blow the end of the story, but it's kind of hard not to. You see, when you get to Easter morning, there's this really cool section about an empty grave. And it just does something if you're a follower of Jesus. You know, we often think that empty is a bad thing, you know. If you got an empty glass, there should be something inside of it. If you got an empty gas tank, that's not good. If your wallet's empty, not so good. If someone ever gives you an empty promise, it can be somewhat heartbreaking. You know, the reality of Easter is that that many of the parts that start out being empty actually finish being very, very, very good. And that's what we need to keep ourselves focused on as we walk through Holy Week. When I was 16 years old, I worked as a, as a lifeguard at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. It was the easiest job in the entire world because at this particular lake, the easiest way to save somebody's life was to utter some very simple life-saving words. All you had to say was, stand up. And it would take care of them because most of the water in Turtle Mountain Lake came up to about here on your torso. So you just had to say something to them. If they thought they were drowning, all you had to say was, stand up. And my job was to care for the lives of the children who ventured into the pond that we actually called a lake. It was an unbelievably high calling. I spent my summer doing that. One hot afternoon, I was guarding the lives of a group of children patrolling back and forth on the dock. The truth was, I was working on my tan and soaking up the attention of the 13-year-old girls who were swimming in front of me. I was only 16, cut me some slack, okay? I'm I'm patrolling back and forth, doing my thing, when I hear words coming out of the water from the other end of the dock. I hear someone say, help, save me. So I run to the end of the dock, and there is a 12-year-old young lady struggling in the water, trying to keep her head above the waterline. I used my primary life-saving technique. Stand up! She didn't. She just kept thrashing around in the water. Now, I actually do have some lifeguard training, and I knew that the last thing you want to do as a lifeguard is actually enter the water. Because if a person is thrashing, the potential for them to grab a hold of you and drag you down goes up astronomically. So that's one thing you don't do. So I I grabbed a throw bag, a bag with a bunch of rope inside of it, threw it out, landed right on top of her. Grab the line. 
she just thrashed it away. Kept yelling, save me, save me. I grabbed a life jacket off of the dock. I threw it. It landed right on top of her. She pushed it away. Finally, I'm running out of gear. So I went and got one of those great big life-saving hooks. It's about a 10-foot pole. Great big hook on the end of it. And I'm trying to snare this kid and pull her in towards the dock. She keeps knocking it away. Finally, as I kind of got it around her, she stopped thrashing. Swam back to the dock, climbed up the ladder, looked at me and said, I wanted you to save me. Okay, I'm only 16, but my mama didn't birth no idiot. Okay, I knew what was going on in that moment. But I suddenly realized something. Her words were empty. She wanted to be saved. She did. But she wanted to be saved, and she wanted salvation on her own terms. And she wanted it with her agenda being accomplished. They're empty words. Every time I read the account of Palm Sunday, I hear empty words. Even though in church we often hear the beautiful things, and we're going to get to some of those in a moment, I hear empty words. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, gives us the account of the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And this is what the Bible says. If you're following along in your outline, Ferndale, you can follow on the screens as well. The Bible says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out meeting him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus had been out ministering to people. He'd been teaching and healing. He'd been stirring up the religious folk because they didn't know what to do with this itinerant Jewish rabbi. His reputation had begun to build, and, and, and people start thinking, Finally! Finally, God's raised up a warrior king, and he's going to ride into Jerusalem, and we're going to overthrow the Roman government, and it's going to be perfect. We're finally going to get to do what we want to do. Finally, they think, someone's going to come and save us. The word Hosanna, literally translated, means save us now. Save us now. That's what they were asking Jesus to do as he rode into Jerusalem. And if you look at the words, they appear to be quite beautiful, don't they? I mean, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. But what makes them empty, like the the empty space behind me, is the fact within one week, the same group of people who were screaming, save us now, were screaming a different word. Crucify him. Kill him. We don't want him. He's not our king. Looks good on the outside. Sorry, we're not with that guy. So you take and nail him to a cross, and you deal with him Roman style. I can't help but think, we we sang songs of worship and praise already at the beginning of the service. Many of the songs contain the same words, don't they? Blessed, name, king, lord. My question for me, my question for you is, do we mean them? Or will our words end up being empty? 
You know, in the past couple of weeks, in preparation for Easter, I've been listening to a lot of people. I spent a week in Nevada preaching at, at Central Christian Church, and, and it's amazing what you learn about people when you just sit on an airplane or you, or you sit in, in, in a restaurant all by yourself, and you just listen to the conversations that are swirling around you. I've heard words in grocery lines, coffee shops, on the radio, and when you listen to them, it's amazing how many words you hear that are empty, how many words you hear that are broken. I listed a bunch of words here, and we're actually going to dare to call them our own empty words. Now, I know some of you are going to hear them, and you're going to go, that's not my words. Just stick with me all the way through if you can. I hesitated to put the first one in here. The first one is a pretty bold declaration, but it's an empty set of words, and it says this, there is no God. I lived that statement before I got saved. If I was to be honest, I would be the first one to stand up and say, that's not true, there is a God. But my reality is, even though I say there's a God, sometimes I act like there isn't. Some of us as believers might stand up defiantly and say, that's not true, there is a God. Really? Do we act like it all of the time? It's a question. I've heard the empty words, there is no God, quite a few times on an airplane. It usually happens and comes in the next couple of minutes after my seatmate has asked me the question, what do you do for a living? And I've answered them. Most of the time when I tell them I'm a pastor, they say, that's nice. And then they go on to confess to me how long it's been since they've been in church and when they're planning on going back. It's a strange dynamic, but it happens, all right? A few times, though, people hear that I'm a pastor, and they go on a rant about their disbelief in God, which is really a statement about their faith in non-belief, but I don't bother to point that out to them because they already, already seem to be fairly agitated by the time we get to this point. You know, sometimes it... it, it well, let me ask a question. Why is it that people that don't believe in God, why do they seem so angry all the time? I mean, they're just frustrated. Unbelievable. I mean, my belief in Jesus brings me a lot of peace. Apparently, their statement of non-belief just ticks them off. I don't understand it, but in his book, Observations, Charlie Middlebrook explains why he thinks people who don't believe in God are so angry. He says this. He says, I do have a theory about the anger of some atheists. It seems that they're angry because the stakes are so high, and in a profound sense, they know they'll lose even if they win. If it's a contest and they're the victors, so what? By the time they can legitimately claim victory, there will be nothing or anybody to celebrate with them. You think about it. I'm not going to go on an apologetics rant today. On the empty words, there is no God, because the Bible speaks very clearly to those empty words. Psalm 14, verse 1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. On that very first Palm Sunday, I'm sure we love to pick on the people who came alongside of the road. At least they were willing to name a God. See, there was a whole group of other people that looked at Jesus the same way many people in our modern society do. And they see him and they just go, he's not God. He's a figment of somebody's imagination. He's a pipe dream. And God has a word for those statements. He calls them empty. Number two, let's move on to the next one. Most of us could probably excuse ourselves from the first one, and I pray that you can. I really do. 
But the second one probably gets a little more personal. It goes like this. I don't need God's help. I don't need God's help. This is a tough one because even as a follower of Jesus, I can't put that statement off on anybody else. Because the truth is, and I know I'm not alone, I struggle with my own independence. I like to be able to do things my way, in my time, on my schedule, with my particular set of agendas attached. It happened last week. I took my family with me on the first part of my trip to Henderson, Nevada, where I was going to preach. We went to check in our luggage at the Allegiant desk here at the Bellingham Airport. I went to try and put down, simple task, put down the retractable handle of my daughter's suitcase. It was a demonic handle. It would not go down. I, st I did everything. I started reefing on the button. I started pushing the thing upside down. Finally, I'm just looking at the, the guy's trying to check us in. I'm like, excuse me for a minute. I dragged this demonic suitcase over to the side, and I started banging this thing up and down. I'm going to get this thing down. Finally, I got half of it down, which kind of kinked the whole thing, and then I couldn't get it back up again. And I am thrashing this suitcase. My daughter comes over. She's like, you know, Daddy, he really needs to check us in. You need to bring in. Do you know what I said to my daughter? I'm not encouraging this in any way. I looked at her as she got really, really close, and I said, you need to get out of my face. <laughs> in a matter of minutes, I had shocked my wife, pulled off my daughter, scared the Allegiant guy half to death, <laughs> and completely embarrassed myself because... I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. I needed help with the handle and keeping my anger in check. I mean, it blows me away because the truth is the handle of a suitcase, a piece of metal with plastic on it, got the best of me because I thought, I don't need anybody's help. I can do this on my own. To which Jesus replies in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, I'm sitting there going, I can't even operate a piece of luggage without Jesus' help. And the scary thing is some of us go, I can do that. I can do that. I'm just fine. Which means you're saying, I don't need God's help. Number three, how about these empty words? But I'm a good person. But I'm a good person. We say it to ourselves. It doesn't sound so bad, right? You know, because we, we say, I'm nice. I do good things. I do more good things than bad things. That makes me a good person. I go to church. I smile at people. I'm a nice person. And surely that's got to count for something. This one doesn't sound empty, does it? Because we spend our lifetime trying to convince ourselves that we are. It doesn't sound empty until you read the truth of Romans when it says this. Just listen to it, okay? As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. 
Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the peace of God they don't know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Some of you are going, boy, am I glad I came tonight. Yeah, he just didn't encourage her, right? This one hurts because Scripture says the biggest problem we have is not only will we not acknowledge the fact that we're not righteous, but we try to defend it with our own mouth. We say, no, 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 I'm a nice person. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. We're good. Please make it good, Grant. This one hurts. It hurts because we live to find the good in ourselves because it makes us feel better until we do something that exposes that evil little piece inside of us, and then we wonder how in the world we get so far off the mark. I'd love to quote you some song lyrics from what I thought was one of the most beautiful moments we've had at Christ the King in the last year and a half. One of my favorite moments happened when when, uh, Roseanne does deaf interpretation for us on Sunday mornings at at 10 o'clock, and we actually had her come, and she stood on, on a corner of the stage, and she signed a confession of mine. Some of you will remember it. It was a confession that, that speaks directly against the heresy that I'm a good person. Because that's what it is. It's heresy. It's not God's truth. Let me read it to you. It says like this. It says, I heard someone say the other day that they'd seen in me true love displayed, blessed by something I had done for them. No sooner had they said these words that I found myself somehow disturbed, uneasy, as I took their compliment. Because I know the heart inside this man. And I know the truth of who I am. The only thing that's good in me is Jesus. The only thing that's good in me is Jesus. I know me well enough to know, no matter what this life might show, the only thing that's good in me is Jesus. If you could walk the hallways of my heart and see things as they really are, I wonder if you might be surprised. Seeing faded walls of pride and fear, rooms I've filled with faithless tears, and corners where I've stood in compromise. But you'd see the work His grace has done, and you'd know just how far I've come. Because the only thing that's good in me is Jesus. The only thing that's good in me is Jesus. I know me well enough to know, no matter what this life may show, that the only thing that's good in me is Jesus. Can I just say it out loud? The person who pastors Christ the King Community Church has nothing good in him at all. The only thing that's good in him, praise God, is Jesus. You got room in your heart for a couple more? I know this stuff's kind of heavy. How about these empty words? God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll never do it again. Anybody else made that promise? Come on, Ferndale, tell the truth. Everybody else here in Bellingham's lying, all right? So... I mean, you make a decision to do something you know you shouldn't have done. And then when it goes bad and you're at the bottom of the pit, you come looking for a theological bailout and you start making deals, right? I've made it. 
Okay, God, here's the deal. If you save me from this situation, if you get me out of these consequences, here's what I'm willing to do. I will fast and pray for 40 days, volunteer to want to sing in the choir, join a small group, read my Bible from cover to cover, and take notes, listen only to Christian radio, tithe, go on a missions trip, and I'll get baptized again. Right? Right? Anybody else ever been there? I mean, I, I love Scripture because it's so real. The Apostle Paul, he identified that he had this struggle. In Romans chapter 7, this spiritual heavyweight stands up and has the courage to say, I speak the empty words. They come out of my mouth. That God, if you'll just get me out of this. I love it. Here's what Paul says, Romans 7 verse 21. He says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind, making a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members, my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, I, my, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Here's what we really, really say when we get caught in a situation and we want God to bail us out. What we really want to say is this, Jesus, I kind of need you to be my Savior. What I'm really looking for is for you to save me from these circumstances. I want you to bail me out of my consequences. I want you to save me from this mess. But as soon as I get out, I want you to leave me alone. Those are empty words, my friends. Let's try one more. Before you go into complete depression, let me add one more, all right? How about this one? I want Jesus to be my Savior but I still want to control my life. I want Jesus to be my Savior, but I still want to control my life. None of us would ever say this out loud. I don't think we'd have the guts. None of us would ever say it out loud, but we live it every single time when God reaches into one of those deep, dark corners of our soul and he reaches in because he wants to get a hold of it because he knows that fortress has got to eventually come out. He reaches down deep and we do this to his hand. You keep your hand out of that corner, Jesus. You can have all the rest of it, but you need to leave that alone because that's mine. Every time we find ourselves doing that, I'll tell you what we're saying. We're saying, I love that Jesus is my Savior. I just don't want him to be Lord, and I don't want him to be in control because God wants to go after those dark areas because that's what's killing you. You know, I... Uh, I love having Jesus as my Savior. My biggest struggle as a believer has been giving over all the ugly parts and letting him do whatever it is that he wants to do with them. And I've been a little sobered by these words of Scripture as of late. I've been digging into the Word, not looking for the verses that make me feel really, really happy. I'm looking for the ones that cut to the center of my soul because those seem to be the only ones that get through my thick skull. Matthew 7, Jesus said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? 
then I will tell them plainly. And I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Especially because he lists off a bunch of things here that are supposed to be pastor work. Makes me a little nervous. Jesus is saying this. He's saying you can go through the motions, fill the air with pretty words, but the bottom line is unless you're willing to do what God's asked you to do and you're participating in his plan to save the world, it's all just empty words and talk. God's saying you can flap your gums all you want to, but if you're not actually going to live it, if you're not actually going to do it, then you're not doing anything. You're just filling the air with carbon dioxide. So I know, now that I've just completely devastated everybody and you're bummed out and you're wondering, what in the world happened to Grant in Nevada? Let me tell you what the point is. The point is this. It's Easter. It's Easter. This is the most important week of all. In the whole calendar, out of the 52, this week means the most to us as the followers of Jesus. This is it for us, because this is the week when the words come alive. If you've forgotten some of the words of Easter, let me remind them, let me remind you of them. Try this one on for side. Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. This is the week when the words come alive. God, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know why he was doing that? How about these words? It is finished. He was talking about our sin and the price he paid to make it go away. This is it for us. This is everything to us. This week we've got an opportunity to live out our worship in a holy week. And my question, it's for me. I'm just sharing it with the rest of you. My question is this. Grant, you flap your gums all weekend long. Are your words empty or are they full? Does it really mean as much to you as you say? How are we going to keep our words from being empty? How are we going to keep from from becoming just like the people at the first Palm Sunday that said, save us, Jesus, save us. And one week later, screaming crucified. How are we going to protect ourselves from doing that? Let me tell you how. We're going to empty ourselves of us and fill ourselves with him. It's the only way it can happen. We do everything we can at Christ the King to give you an opportunity to do that. The shadow of the cross is an opportunity for you to do that. It's an opportunity for you to say, I'm going to take an hour of my very busy week and my very busy schedule, and I'm going to put my whole life on hold to remember the life of one who said to his children, do this in remembrance of me. It's just an opportunity. We've created two Good Friday services. Not because we don't have anything better to do on Friday. 
But because we understand deep in the bottom part of our soul, you can't have Easter resurrection morning if you don't go through the hell of Good Friday first. So we open up the doors and say, come, share communion, worship with us. Come and experience, feel it. Because he did it for you and me. They're just opportunities. My prayer is that, that we'll understand that if we walk with Jesus to the cross and then we remember if we walk with Him, He will help us empty ourselves and then we will come Easter Sunday morning and be able to celebrate the fact that not only is the cross empty, but tomb's empty too. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish our service very different than we normally do. Instead of cranking back the band, up the band again and everybody just bouncing out of here and slapping each other a high five, which I think is awesome. We're going to have a moment to empty ourselves. And we're just going to dial it way, way, way down. So that we'll know whether or not we can hear that echo inside of, of an empty self. Knowing that Jesus will come and fill it for us. With himself. So I'm going to ask Aaliyah to come and join me. And uh, Aaliyah is going to play and we're going to sing. We're going to sing together, and, and we're going to sing a song about putting all the right stuff in the right places. We sing this one here, Christ the King, a fair bit. Sometimes I wonder, do we really understand? So I'm going to ask you to sing it with me, family. I'm the only one with a microphone, and that's slightly intimidating right now, but... I believe this song epitomizes everything that we're trying to do this Easter, which is to empty ourselves so that He can fill us. So let's sing together. Leah, you with me? All about 
sorry, Lord, for the thing I few moments we're going to dismiss here at Bellingham and in Ferndale as well we're not just walking out of church we're walking back into the world that Jesus died for we're walking back into the world that Jesus died to save and my prayer is as we leave in this holy moment quietly and reverently that on our lips will be words like Jesus is God Jesus is King I won't do this on my own I choose to follow Jesus I am thankful for everything he did and may that protect me this week from empty promises. May we say, I am named with those who call themselves Christians because I follow Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. Would you pray with me as we close? God, thank you that your heart is to protect us, 
from empty words. That your love knows no bounds. That you came to give your people life and life to the full. May we walk this week in reverence, in awe, and in humility, and with great joy. We commit ourselves to a life that is full, and we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.